If you've got a Bible, open to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We're going to finish the chapter this morning. Just a bit of revision. It's been a couple of months at Bethabara. Jesus retreated there after he, they tried to kill him again in Jerusalem. Jesus gets a call for help from his friends Mary and Martha. And Jesus has come back, spoken to Martha and then Mary, and then gone to the tomb. And we read the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And here we see our God full of compassion for his people. And now we'll pick it up in verse 32. So before we start reading, I'll pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful chapter and this picture of coming events, the things that are coming soon, the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. And we just pray you help us to, to be encouraged and challenged from what we learn in here. In Jesus' name, amen. So I remember um, last week that we talked about faith and uh, Jesus said, this sickness is not unto death, but so you will see the glory of God. And by the time the messenger got back, Lazarus had been dead for already two days and in the tomb. And then Jesus waits even longer and he says, I'm glad that we're not there. I'm glad for your sakes we're not there, for your faith. Okay, so we'll get back into that later. So verse 32, we'll pick it up there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. So one of the interesting things that we discovered last week was when it says Jesus groaned, it's just like an angry snort, okay? It's a righteous indignation. And when it says he wept, it was a quiet weeping. It was a sadness. When it says Mary wept, it was a wailing, out-of-control wailing. So let's just jump into um, verse 36. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? So, couldn't Jesus have done something? Well, yes and no. 
Yes, he had the power, but no, it wasn't his plan, not until a few moments later. And so we come sometimes to the Lord with the mindset of Mary and Martha. We say, if you had been here, everything would have been fine. But that's not always the way it is. We'll come back to that. Uh, Verse 38, Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he's been dead four days. So the condition, like the smell coming out of the tomb, is irrefutable proof that he has been dead for four days. Okay. Now, here's an application for us. Martha is saying, Lord, just let it be. He's dead. It stinks now. I've got this thing, this stone rolled over the tomb to keep the smell in there so no one can smell it. It's kind of like out of the way. Well, if God wants to deal with something in us, some stench in us, that's the kind of thing that we say too. Oh, Lord, don't open that up. It stinks. Can you just leave that alone? (laughs) And God says, no, I want to heal that. I want to resurrect you there. I want to bring that part of your life back to life instead of being dead in sin but just you know that particular area of your life to be alive you know to be led by the spirit and we have to say okay and we have to open it up and yes it's going to smell and we're going to be embarrassed we're going to be shamed but that's the only way that god is going to be able to deal with that So the Lord said, I gave you a promise, Martha, but here's a prerequisite, the condition you need to roll away the stone. Now, Jesus can roll away the stone, and he did roll away his own stone, but it's up to us to roll away our stones to let Jesus do the work in our hearts. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So Jesus can do this miracle with or without the belief of Mary and Martha, but if they would not believe, they would not see the glory of God. They would not share in this awesome miracle. So they could see the end results and be happy in that, but they would miss the glory of working together with God in the accomplishing of his plan. Uh, Verse 41, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. So what does this tell us about Jesus' public prayers? Do you think he prayed much in public? I don't think so. The idea here, I think, I'm I'm only praying out loud, so that the people around me know that I'm talking to you and this miracle is coming from you, that it's coming from the Father. I'm I'm being obedient to the Father. And I know that you always hear me. I don't need to pray publicly. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. So our private prayer life is the powerhouse of our life, our Christian walk. We need to make time for that private prayer as Jesus has modelled here or modelled elsewhere in the Gospels and brought out here as well. 
43. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. So why did Jesus have to say, Lazarus, come forth? Because if he just said, come forth, everyone would have come forth, all right? Out they all come. No, it's not time yet. Wait. <clears throat> okay. So Jesus speaks to a dead body as if Lazarus lived, because he is God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And that's Romans 4.17. This is how Jesus can call forth a person dead and defeated in sin and deception to a new life in him. He's still calling people from the dead today. Every time that someone gets saved, it's a miracle. Jesus is raising them spiritually from the dead. They're dead in trespasses and sins. And he brings them out of their tombs, figuratively speaking. Verse 44, And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. So his face was wrapped with a cloth. So in a sense, Lazarus was not resurrected but resuscitated. He arose bound in grave clothes because he's going to need them again. He's still going to die physically. Whereas Jesus, when he rose in his glorified body, he left his grave clothes behind. Something to think about. He's never going to need his grave clothes again. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. So his disciples and the family are there and he turns to them and he says, loose him and let him go. Now, Jesus could have just clicked his fingers and all the grave clothes would have fallen off. But you know what? God has given us the church to loose people and let them go. Jesus does the resurrection. Jesus does what only God can do. But then he uses the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit working through the body of Christ, in discipleship, in building up, in encouragement, in prophecy, in all those things that help us in our Christian walk. So we need to be praying for each other, sharing with each other, warning each other, as it says in Hebrews, and standing by each other, encouraging each other, strengthening each other. So we are the hands and feet of God. We are the body of Christ. And this is called discipleship. So that's the picture I get from that. Now, coming back to these verses, I'm going on a, a bit of a um, rabbit trail, kind of a bit like Chuck Missler does. So, and he who had died came out. And there's a quote from Guzik, and he said, Jesus fought death at Lazarus' tomb and plundered the grave, serving it notice that shortly he would completely conquer it. This was coming attraction for what would happen at the empty tomb of Jesus. I just want to focus on this for a bit because it's going to set us up for as we keep going through John as Jesus is crucified and then he's, he dies and he rises again. So for me, I see the line of the tribe of Judah here. So snorting in anger, so that word is used twice. He's snorting in anger. Yes, he's weeping quietly when he gets there, but he's snorting in anger. And Jesus, in righteous indignation, I believe, is sending a message of coming victory. He's had enough of all the suffering that sin has caused, all the pain of separation that came from Adam's original sin. And we amplify or exasperate by our own rebellious choices. 
Now it's almost time to defeat death once and for all. Not long from now, the ultimate sacrifice will be made. And here is a verse we can read together. It's Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, that is payment, for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So the word destroy in Hebrews 2.14 means to render inactive, to condemn, to inactivity, to put out of use, to remove from the sphere of activity. So Satan will be destroyed, to be put out of action. And I did a word search on that and I found two other verses that use it that are related to this subject. Second Thessalonians 2.8 And then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, before the second coming, Jesus will destroy the Antichrist, the man possessed by Satan himself. And the next one is this, 1 Corinthians 15.26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So this hasn't happened yet, okay? But it will happen when Jesus returns for the second time. Until then, people still physically die, all right? So... Jesus will win the victory on the cross. He, you know, as we're going through John. And from our point of view now, 2019, he has won the victory on the cross, but he has yet to come and claim the spoils. So until that time, Jesus has given us the task of being his ambassadors to reach out to the lost and share the gospel with them so that even though their physical body will die, if they repent and believe that Jesus died in their place, and ask for forgiveness, they will continue to experience eternal life with Jesus in heaven because they have been made right with God. And have you heard the phrase that Satan comes as a a wolf in sheep's clothing to deceive? Well, I think of Jesus as coming as a lion in sheep's clothing to redeem. You remember the movie, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, or the book? Have you read that? I mean, you've got the white witch, Aslan. And for me, that gives us a good picture of depicting what is taking place or what took place at the spiritual level. So when the white witch killed Aslan, an innocent person died in the place of a guilty person. So Aslan died in the place of Edmund, who was called a traitor. She thought that it was all over, that she had won. And that movie brings it out pretty clear. She thought that she had won. Little did she know well, in the movie, that Aslan is, you know, freeing all of the captives from her ice castle. And then that final battle scene where Aslan jumps on her and she looks up and her smirk of self-confidence and victory changes to one of utter fear and shock and terror as she's about to be destroyed. And so, 
Like the white witch, Satan thought that he had won, only to find that Jesus had conquered and that he had lost his power and authority and his captives. You know the Old Testament saints? They were freed. They were taken from the center of the earth, the, um, the place called paradise or Abraham's bosom, and Jesus took them with him to heaven. Now you might be asking, if Satan is smart and he can read, then why didn't he understand the Old Testament prophecies about the resurrection, like in Isaiah 53? Well, Satan is the ultimate deceiver, right? Which means he is the most deceived person. If you're the most deceived person, then you've got the least understanding of reality. And so what Satan thought was happening was not what was actually happening. So Jesus comes like a lamb to the slaughter, silent and not complaining, allowing the rulers to have their hour, their moment of glory. And Satan was given permission to do what he wanted to do. And prophecy was fulfilled. And I've got a verse to help us understand this, to set us up as we go crucifixion in the coming weeks. Luke twenty-two forty-seven to 53 And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try and seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Now, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Your hour is your favorable time. It's their moment of glory. So the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and that, they would have their moment of glory. They would have their apparent victory when they got their own way and they crucified the Lord. Now, and the power of darkness, this is a really interesting word, the word power. The Greek meaning is, it's used of the possibility of action given authoritatively by God, the king or government, to confer authority, permission or freedom on someone or some group of people to do something. So Jesus is basically saying here, I have given Satan the authority, the freedom, the permission to act on his desires, to do what he wants to do. And so this is the hour of darkness. This is what Satan has been given permission to do. And just to explain that a bit further, I can give someone permission to pick up my mail. I can write a letter and give them proof of identity, and that person now has the freedom or authority or permission to pick up my mail. So in this context, God has given Satan and the other powers of darkness, the demons or fallen angels, he has given them permission, freedom, and authority to to torture and crucify Christ. In other words, to do what they wanted to do. So Satan and the other powers of darkness and the human servants were the agent used by God to complete the plan of God to fulfill prophecy. In their minds, they were in control. They were killing Jesus by their own strength and power. But as always, Satan can do nothing unless he is granted permission by God. But you know what? When they did that, they will still suffer the consequences. The Jewish leaders, their nation were destroyed because they rejected their Messiah. And Satan will suffer for all the sins that he's committed too. As Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. 
So just want to make this clear, again, as we're going into the crucifixion. Were the Pharisees and Satan and his hordes, the powers of darkness, were they more powerful than Jesus? No. So why did Jesus allow them to humiliate him, to send him to the cross? Because it was part of God's plan. Satan's grand scheme was coming to a climax. He thought he was winning. And, you know, like the white witch in the movie, he's grinning with a big grin, but then it's going to be changed into a look of shock and absolute fear and panic. So what happened when Jesus said, it is finished, gave up his spirit and died? Well, let's read in Matthew 27, 51 to 54. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. So Jesus, once he had paid the penalty in that three hours of darkness, went down into the earth, took the captives captive, took them back up to heaven. The evidence of that is the graves are opened. And they paradise in the middle of the earth is now empty. They are all in heaven. And when we die, that verse is now true. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And just to emphasize this victory that has been um, obtained, Revelation 1.8, Jesus says, I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Revelation 5.5-7, So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. This is a, the title deed of the earth. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Hold. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed, has conquered, won, and is victorious to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits that God sent out into all the earth, Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So in my mind, the Lion of Judah has roared. Jesus has brought us back, redeemed us back to himself. Soon, I believe very soon, the way the end time events are shaping up, he'll take that title deed from the Father and return and claim what is rightfully his and reign for a thousand years with us at his side. So let's go back to John and go to verse 45 and we'll just quickly finish off the chapter. So this is the response now of the people. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and the nation. 
And one of them, Cyphus, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now he did not say this on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then, from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there he remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. So Jesus doing this miracle has just stoked the flames of this tension, this rivalry between him and the uh, religious leaders there. And the belief. Some people believed and some people didn't. I just want to go back to what Mary and Martha said and talking about belief, right? And what God does for us and what we expect from God. I just want you to think about this. The first is that delays are determined by the Lord for his glory. So where are you, Lord, we cry. I sent a message to you in prayer. I cried out to you in sincerity. But you're not working. You're not coming. Where are you? So, Lord, come and heal, cry Mary and Martha. But Jesus says, I'm going to do something a lot more important than that, a lot bigger than that, a lot more impacting. I'm going to resurrect him. But that means he has to die first. So I think there's a principle here that the longer God causes us to wait, the longer we have to go through a particular trial, then the greater the deliverance, the more obvious it is that God has done something awesome, that what has happened is only because of God. And we sing songs which say something like, use my life. But if we're going to sing that, we need to be ready to accept tragedy, to accept suffering. Because what if it means cancer or bankruptcy or death or setback or pain? Well, If God can get the maximum amount of glory from that, when a world who doesn't believe watches us go through terrible times and they see his strength in us, well then that's worth it. Okay, Samson's greatest victory happened when? When he died. He was blind, he was a prisoner, he pushed on the pillars of the Temple of Dagon and brought the roof down upon himself and over 3,000 of the rulers of the Philistines died and he killed more in his death than he did in his life so use my life we pray thinking oh god will use me to start a fruitful ministry and thousands of people will be saved that god will use us or that god will bless us so that we can share our blessings with others but the lord says okay i'll use you i'll show my goodness and reality as you go through difficulties when the roof caves in and the house comes down then the demons will flee, the Philistines will fall, and I will be glorified. 
So if you really want your life to be used, then let the Lord do what he knows will bring him the greatest glory. Now, baby Christians don't understand this, right? Like all babies, all they care about is themselves. That's selfishness. And we all start as infants, okay? All they care about is themselves. They want their stomachs full and their diapers changed. They want to be satisfied. And that's okay because that's normal for a baby Christian. But there comes a time to put away childish things. 1 Corinthians 13 11. We need to put away childish things. We need to grow up and we need to be able to say, to God be the glory, whatever this may mean in my life. I'm willing to do anything for you, go through anything for you. So second application here. Not only are delays determined by the Lord for his glory, but the solution to your frustration is not something, it's someone. So Jesus says, I am the resurrection. It's me. I'm what you're looking for. So the solution to our problems is the person of Jesus. We might be suffering financially, but is money our greatest need? No, it's Jesus. Because he says, I am the bread. You don't need some kind of mystical experience to guide you and give you direction because Jesus says, I am the way. And he is everything that we need. And when we realize that he is the great I am, we'll find ourselves actually embracing the trials and not resenting them because we recognize his presence with us. And you go, this is amazing. There's no way I can get through this by myself. God is getting me through these trials and he's supporting me and I've got the joy of the Lord in my heart, yes, I'm suffering, but I've got the joy of the Lord in my heart. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego only left the fiery furnace when they were asked to. They had opportunity to do so before, but they chose to stay in the fire because they found Jesus, a closer relationship with Jesus in that fire. So if you allow the Lord to do his work, you will perceive the presence of Jesus Christ so clearly that you will say, Lord, keep me in the fire all the time if this is the only way that I can see you. You know, We just should be desiring the presence of the Lord, the joy of the Lord in our lives. But you might say, I'm going through tough times, but I'm not finding the Lord in the fire. Well, what about Mary, Easter Sunday? And she's looking around and she can't see Jesus. What does she say? She talks to the gardener. Where have you put my Lord? Where's his body? (laughs) Who's she talking to? Jesus was there all the time. She's upset. She's missing Jesus. But he was right in front of her. And the tears can represent our own fears and our blindness and our lack of faith. But if we just a place where we can say, Lord, I believe you will see me through, put away our tears of self-pity and then we'll see clearly that Jesus is actually present all the time and he's with us. Verse 46, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. So Lazarus comes out of the grave and what happens? Well, some believe, but others go, let's tell on Jesus. What more could you want as a miracle to prove that this is a Messiah? Raising people from the dead when they've been dead four days. But No, let's just go tell the Pharisees and they can make more trouble for Jesus. 47. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? 
For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. So what are we going to do about Jesus? The Jews ask each other, the leaders. Well, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders there, the ministry was just a platform for personal prestige and power. It was a way to make money. Very similar to a lot of uh, preachers these days, you know, the televangelists and stuff. Their ministry is just a platform for personal prestige and power. And Jesus, the truth, is actually a threat to them. What are we going to do about it? He's going to take away our place. They were concerned about losing their place, their position as the religious leaders. And they said that if everyone believes in Jesus, then the Romans will come and take away our nation. Well, guess what? It was because they rejected Jesus that the Romans took away the nation. So they had that mixed up as well. Verse 49. And one of them, Cyphus, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So basically dying for the whole world. Now, background, Annas was originally the high priest, but he got so rich for making so much money off people coming to the temple from his schemes, ripping people off, that he made his son-in-law, Cyphus, to be the high priest. So at the time, Cyphus was the high priest. And Cyphus gives this prophecy. And he probably didn't even realize that he was being used by the Spirit to prophesy about Jesus. You know, this guy is a wicked man. He's just out there to fleece the people. He's like one of these televangelists who's just out there to, to, um, to fleece the flock. Yet the Spirit still inspired him at this moment to speak truth. And what he said was true. It is true. One man did die, not only for the nation, but for the sins of all men. So I just want to remind us that truth can come from any place. This was a wicked man, and yes, he was in the position of the high priest, but consider this, Second Chronicles. 35, 20-22. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, now Josiah is a godly king. He really loves the Lord. He's been reading the law, all this kind of stuff. Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. But the king of Egypt sent messengers to him, saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste. Refrain from meddling with God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Now remember there's the wicked king, the king of Egypt, the picture of the world, talking to a godly king. And he's saying, And God is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him. And he did not heed the words of Necho, from the mouth of God. Interesting, eh? So truth can come from anywhere. And 
the word that I received to come down to Esperance came from a non-believer as well. In fact, he didn't even know he spoke to me. He was at a year 12 graduation ceremony and he was talking and giving a story to the students, but God used part of what he said to speak to my heart and to come down here. Verse 53, Then from that day on they plotted to put him to death. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, a few days away. And many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, that he should report it, that they might seize him. So now we have the high priest and those really powerful people joining in this plot. So it's the entire government, if you want. And so this is like the beginning of the end, or the end of the beginning, however you want to see it. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews. Now, again, we've talked with this before. Jesus wasn't scared, because his hour has not yet come. But it was soon to come. He was acting in wisdom according to obedience to the Father. And we're coming to the very end, the last week in the life of our Lord, the last week before he'd be crucified on the cross. And you know how many people are going to be in Jerusalem? Well, Josephus tells us that there was 250,000 sheep slaughtered in, during this particular Passover, and there'd be roughly 10 people per sheep. Like if you had a small family, you combine with a bigger family and have one big Passover meal because one sheep would feed about 10 or more people. So if you do the math, that's about two and a half million people all crammed in to Jerusalem. And there's 250,000 sheep living with the people. So imagine the, the noise and the smell and all this kind of thing. You know, basically standing room only. Jerusalem was not a big town, you know, or a city. And in this scene, people are arriving for Passover. They're doing their purification rites and all that kind of thing. And they probably have to go early to, to make an appointment with the priest because there's so many people there, right? So in the middle of all this, Jesus walks in, the Lamb of God, who's coming to die for the sin of the world. So to summarize John 11, very quickly, we read the fifth of the I Am statements, which was, I am the resurrection and the life. Well done. And we witnessed the seventh and greatest sign miracle, only days before the crucifixion. And that is the resuscitation or resurrection of the Lazarus after being dead four days as a preview of coming attractions. And I just want to finish with um, this couple of things. One of it is a quote from Wearsby about the delay. And it's something to encourage and exhort us. Wearsby says, God's love for his own is not a pampering love. It is a perfecting love. The fact that he loves us and we love him is no guarantee that we will be sheltered from the problems and pains of life. After all, the Father loves His Son, and yet the Father permitted His beloved Son 
to drink the cup of sorrow and experience the shame and pain of the cross. We must never think that love and suffering are incompatible. Certainly they unite in Jesus Christ. Jesus could have prevented Lazarus' sickness or even healed it from where he was, but he chose not to. He saw in this sickness an opportunity to glorify the Father. It is not important that we Christians are comfortable, but it is important that we glorify God in all we do. What was the purpose of Lazarus' sickness and death? Well, Jesus did not say he was glad that his friend died, but that he was glad that he had not been there, for now he could reveal to his disciples his mighty power. The result would be glory to God and the strengthening of their faith. So it's a a nice little summary of the main point of this chapter, the strengthening of this faith. John 11.15 says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. So, Each experience of suffering and trial should increase our faith. But this spiritual growth is not automatic. We need to respond in a positive way to the ministry of the Word and the Spirit of God. Jesus sent, in this picture that we've looked at in the last two weeks, a promise to the two sisters, and then he waited four days, or another three days, before he came back. He gave them three days to think about this and to decide, how am I going to respond to this promise that God has given me? Well, they kept on grieving and wailing. How will we respond to the promises that God gives us? If joy is a measure of our faith, how much joy do we have? Will we be sorrowing and overwhelmed by a seeming tragedy or rejoicing in expectation of the coming answer to prayer and solid in our love for God? So trials can either make us bitter or better. Greater faith leads to greater obedience, which leads to greater joy and hope. And this is a road called sanctification that we are all on. Father, I thank you for this chapter. It's very challenging and uh, it's very um, thought-provoking. But Lord, as in one of the songs we sing, I don't know where you'll take me, but I know that you're always good. And we just thank you for the fact that you are always good, that your heart toward us is always good. Your thoughts toward us are always good. In fact, they can't even be counted. Positive thoughts, thoughts to build us up. You're always thinking about us. We're always on your mind. And we're really, really special to you, Lord. So help us not to forget that as we go through the trials and we see your delays, we see the perceived absence, your deliberate absence sometimes, and it's there to make us stronger so we can experience more of you, so we can see more of your glory. Teach us to be patient, Lord. Teach us to grow in our faith and to respond in a positive way, Lord, to to trust you so we can grow. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.